Abe here, and I wanted to let you know that if you're able, you can upgrade your small beans skill over at patreon.com slash small beans. Here's why you should do that. If you pledge five measly beans a month, you get access to about half our podcasts that you don't get if you're just listening to the free feed. Shows include Star Trek The Next Futurama, Spielboys, Like Razor Blade Pie, and bonus episodes of I'll Show You Mine If You Show Me Yours. Not to mention bonus content, including info and updates on the movie we're making, Papa Bear. Hey, where's all the reasons to not subscribe to Patreon? I can't find them. Anyway, back to the show. Hey Abe, uh, what kind of what kind of what what type of kid were you in high school? <laughs> I thought a lot about do I fit into one of these personality types. Mm. Uh, I tried to be a jock because, yeah. but I mean, but like I in my core I was a nerd, definitely. Uh, you, yeah. a, until I got to be six three, and then I then I and you're just dunking on everybody. Uh, certainly. There was more fear <laughs> in my high school than there was before, uh, but I didn't fit so, neatly into either category really. So, so tyrant, tyrant, like terrifying. By senior year, tyrant. No, I've right, never, cool. never been a tyrant. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think it's very telling when I watched the movie we're going to talk about today. Uh, it was Michael Anthony Hall's character that really resonated for me. Oh, really? Yeah, he's the one I. Oh. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know what you're, I know what you're feeling, buddy. Uh, Would it surprise you that I, the one that I uh, connected to is was the Claire. Allison? Al, Al, no, no, <laughs> I was Allison Reynolds, dude. Really? I was Ali Sheedy. That made yeah. sense to you? I don't know. I just made. I think I just had a crush on her. She is. Uh, there is something about her. I understand. So, but but, I, but you're really yeah, between. You're between Andrew and Bender, right? That's who you are. Uh, You're between those two guys. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I ever was a bender. I think I was. Uh, I was because for the first two years of high school, I was a jock, and then yeah. some drama happened in my um, in my like uh, s- s- social circle. This is a thrill. I love this. That uh, that. I definitely was like instigating, or I was the emo <laughs> one. I was the one who was like, "You guys, fuck you guys." I don't need any of you anymore. Uh, and that led me to go like, "So who am I? Who, yeah, if yeah. I'm not a jock, who yeah, am yeah. I?" And I was like, "I know, because I of all this drama, I'm a theater kid." <laughs> uh, leaving jock world is a big move in high school, because that is a, like that's a it's I mean the most dramatic thing you could do. Pretty much. I mean, I don't know what it's. I feel like high school is probably different like in terms of what are the casts than it was for us, like in that 10 year range that we would be in high school ish. I mean, they look different, but it's all the same, man. Do you, so you think there's still jocks and nerds and I don't think it's jocks and nerds necessarily. I think those, those are pretty evergreen. So I bet there are, but it's just the point of the human animal when forced into uh, like a system that they have to run we'll find for the cast. first time. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. find cast systems because they we our brain can't compute. We need an other, we need a we have the xenophobic like thing. Maybe we've read that out of the beast, but I just don't think so. Oh no, no. I I, I think you get out of it. Yeah. You, like the whole point of teenager is to defeat that demon, so to speak, and some people never really do. But like a lot of people, that's the purpose of teenagers is you go, oh, yeah, that was dumb. I shouldn't have been that way. That was dumb. I guess. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, and then you think about college, though, and a lot of college it's is still about the same. finding still a cast. You know, like. I think it's, uh, it's that's just a little bit more advanced teenager. Yeah. Like, high school and college is, like, basically the same thing. You just have more control. 
and drugs are now involved. <laughs> or or always were, Abe. Uh, let's be honest, my dude. Uh, <laughs> let's, let, let's, I mean, I'm not asking you to confess your crimes on the mic here, but let's uh-huh. be honest here, buddy. Yeah, let's I'm a big drug man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Abe hey, mom. Drugman hey, mom Epperson. And dad. I'm drugs. Your, yeah, your no, parents no, have never listened to a single podcast you've made. I, I don't think I would bet. they care. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mine don't either. I love it about them. Kind of like, I'm, I'm like the Allison Reynolds, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Sure. I'm Abe Epperson. That's Adam Ganser. Woo! Uh, and this is Director Peace Theater. Sure is. Uh, we're big time director guys. We're Hollywood. Big time. We're like really important and yeah. stuff. And um, no, we just like to tell you about like our experiences with directing by watching movies and trying to find some of the charm of movies that you wouldn't even go. That's hey, that's an artistic film. That's a really well thought out film to show you that like there's craftsmen and women everywhere in the industry and they're bringing some heat, some serious heat. And let's talk about that heat. Uh, and this time we're talking about The Breakfast Club. We sure are. Uh, the Breakfast Club. Yeah, that's right, baby. Put your fist in the air, because we're doing it. <laughs> Put your fist in the air for no reason. We're doing it. For uh, goddamn no reason. <laughs> that's right. No reason whatsoever. He he did it? Yeah. I guess he did it. He did that. He did it. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally the experience when you watch it now. Yeah, you're like, just like, he did that. the movie, you're like, oh, that was a nice little like resolution. Everyone's a little bit closer. Yeah. Oh, everyone's dating. Okay, cool. Okay, and sure. He's on a football. He's on a. Fo- he's on a football field, and he's like, "I fucking won." I did. <laughs> it's just like I guess he won, dude. I guess you did it. Uh, I guess you did it. So good. Got a new earring. Finally, she got a new. Got earring. a new earring. Anyway, so oh, you know that Bender is gonna sell the shit out of that diamond earring for Who booze. Wouldn't? Who would not do it? <laughs> Uh, anyway, so do that. Get ready to blame everything on your parents. It's breakfast club time. So, uh, I've probably watched this movie a minimum of six, seven times, I would guess. Really? Oh, I love this movie. This is the second time I've seen it since I was like 15. Wow. Okay. Well, so then you probably noticed as much as I did how it has aged. Like, uh, it it felt somewhat relevant for most of my young adulthood and it Uh feels pretty aged out now. Um, yeah, they're a bunch of Holden Caulfields for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's very white, uh, and their problems <laughs> seem very superficial in a way that, and I don't mean that they are, because I don't think they are. I think their problems are very real and painful to them, but they definitely seem like, man, y- your life is fairly simple compared to the complexities that exist in the world. Right. Uh, yeah. But like, it's also a little aged out because the characters feel more distinctly like types. Like they've, yeah, they've put, they're archetypal. Yes. Yeah. And I can't tell if it's because the movie was so seminal that it was imitated a lot. And that means that now we've seen so many movies trying to be the breakfast club that we don't recognize why it was fresh at the time. Or, um, as I was saying earlier that the social types that exist in, in high school and college now are not so clean. Like they they feel a little more loose or fluid than they did in this time period. I don't know, but it definitely feels you feel it when you watch the movie now. I would argue. Um, but that said, I think that anybody who's a filmmaker, especially at the early part of their career or when they're trying to get a film off the ground, would find or does find the Breakfast Club to be inspirational um, because it is effortlessly great at a few things. One of them is it's emotionally very deep, and it gets there in an honest way, which is very cool. Um, it also kind of defies the hero's journey in some ways, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's not, it, it doesn't identify its protagonist very clearly. Um, and it doesn't go on a clean arc in the way that you might expect. Um, it's nostalgic before selling nostalgia was like the way to make people interested in something, you know, and that's, that's kind of cool. Um, it had a huge impact, like way outsized of an impact for the scope of movie that it is. Like mm-hmm. if you're a Gen Xer, um, or like an older millennial, this movie is a is a seminal movie for you, probably. Like it feels like this is what movies should be, right? Like there's a lot of people like that in the world. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. Like and you like you can feel it getting quoted and stuff like sitcoms from a decade later and stuff, you know. Um, but perhaps more important for our discussion than any of those qualities is that it's actually super cheap to make this movie. 
Um, because if yeah. you have a cast of the quality that this cast is, then you're you're set. Like this movie is easy to make in that regard. And he got he being John Hughes, who wrote and directed this movie, got great actors for this, all of whom were sort of at the beginning of their career. Um, and I think some of their peak performances, like Anthony Michael Hall, name a thing he was better in than this. He was great in this. Um, Judd Nelson yeah, also. Yeah, no, you're right. Judd Nelson, who who was in sitcoms and did a lot of cool stuff, this is the role he will always be remembered for. You know, he was amazing as Bender in this. Um, and I if you get a know. cast, St. Elmo's Fire. Hey, I like St. Elmo's Fire. You know, it's fine. Yeah. But would you say that he would be remembered for that instead of this? No, no. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking bender. Look at you. <laughs> Spit in your own mouth like a real goblin. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so look, you get a good cast like that, especially, you know, which it's not easy to do, but if you, you know, you hire the right people around you, you can do that. And then you get like a local high school, you shoot it in the summer or in this case in May with a closed school. And it costs almost nothing, you know? And it's a great opportunity to prove yourself as a director um, because you, you know, the, the risk is lower. And in fact, that's exactly what happened for John Hughes. He wrote this film, he'd written a couple of hit films, and he still had to kind of pitch the studio, hey, I want to do this as the director. And they're like, but you've never shot anything. And his selling point was, well, this is a low-risk film to make. It right. costs almost nothing. Uh, it's going to be made in a high school and uh, it's one location. Right. And so they're like, all right, fine. You know, and uh, he was supposed to, this was supposed to be his feature film debut, but he ended up making a different movie first, which was 16 candles. Another film that's worth remembering for different reasons. Uh -huh. Yeah. Hughes was came in hot. Hughes had a fantastic like 10 year run. He, yeah. he made 10 fucking incredible films or something like that. Um, you know, and, and he was like occupying like it's crazy to me that he occupied a space that previous to had just not been occupied. Kind of which was I'm gonna make movies for this specific like a generation. Yeah, he was in a weird way, he was the movie equivalent of a beat writer or something. Yeah. You know, where, yeah, where he like formed a genre in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it's not like it didn't exist. Like there were movies like Fast Fast Times at Ridgemont High and, true, and other true. stuff, but he this movie in particular was very much like, a, no, no, we're not going to make a spoof of high school from guys who have been away from it for 20 years. Yeah, we're not doing National Lampoon's version Correct, of which he wrote, by the way. He wrote all those National right. Lampoon movies. Yeah. So he also knows that genre. But like he wanted to really tell it like it is to, to the degree that a filmmaker can. you know. Um, yeah. Now, the problem with this film is the same thing that makes it easy for a director to cut their chops on it, which is it's a movie that's in one location. And when I say one location, what I mean is we're shooting over 75% of this movie in a single room. And that presents a huge challenge for a filmmaker, which is how do you keep a film in a single room visually interesting? This is extremely my shit right now. Right, because it like movies are about change, fundamentally. They're always about mm -hmm. growing and changing. And if that's true, when you write a movie that takes place in one room, how do you communicate change if you don't have new spaces, new color palettes, new production design, the kinds of stuff that directors lean on to communicate that stuff visually, right? This movie is so grounded, it can't bring stuff like that in because it'll feel like it right. violated the reality of the film. Um, right. Further compounding this problem is this is this guy's first shot as a director, which means he doesn't really know how to use camera that well. And uh, mm -hmm. I think without, I'm not criticizing his camera work. I'm saying he doesn't have the wide palette of tools that someone like say, I don't know. Uh, He's probably, yeah. Yeah, Sidney Lumet, right? Sidney Lumet made 12 Angry Men. That's in one room. But Sidney Lumet was a, a veteran director by the time he'd made that film. Yeah. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think you can see when you watch the film that this director has a visual sensibility, but not a lot of camera knowledge because almost nothing fancy happens in camera. Right. Yeah, it's but the strategies are very sound. Yes. I didn't even uh I kind of read your theory before I rewatched it, so Which I, was, I appreciate I knew what to look for. Yeah. But like, oh geez, it was uh like there was some there's some intelligence in the way it's shot for sure. Yeah, so we're gonna talk about 
how did John Hughes overcome this obstacle to make a film that has resonated for at least one generation uh, as one of the greatest high school movies ever made? Um, so the first thing he did is, and this sounds very obvious, but he picked a good room. <laughs> Right. Yep. He picked a good room. Now, when I directing s- is casting. Yeah. Even if you're casting a room, cast a good room. That's right. So I say that because you're like, come on, Adam. It's like, wait, wait. Think about this. If you're writing a movie about detention, okay, on a Saturday, what are the chances that a real high school would put kids in a library like this, like the one in the Breakfast Club? They would never yeah. do that because number one, you can't guard the exits. Number two, they might get in there and destroy all this stuff when they're not being supervised, right? Like, that's a real problem. Yeah, that's why it usually happens in gyms and stuff. Right, in, they, in a big giant prison, you know what I mean? Like a prison mm-hmm. yard, basically. And in a sense, this felt real because they felt locked in and because these kids probably wouldn't destroy everything in the in the room. But John Hughes had to make pick a room that had a bunch of different areas in it uh, in order to create a sense of change but not actually change the location right so one thing he does is he he's consistently separating the room into various spaces where there will be distinct sequences and scenes yeah it's huge right it's a huge room right like uh it's huge and it's picturesque um yeah it's uh i when i first saw it like i i've totally forgotten what it looked like but when I, i was reading this theory and then i looked at the the first shot of the room, which is just a normal kind of like wide shot of the five of them sitting at the right at, at those desks. desks, I was just like, "Oh, baby, that's a banger of a room!" Because you can yeah. see all the stairwells, you can see all the levels, and like, there's just you have so much to work with. And it's such a perfectly like it's a little bit of a dated room for the time, but it's well decorated, so it's pleasing to look at. A thing that you need for the audience to still care about the film an hour in. Right. Sure. So like uh, he separates this big room into these spaces that he will use for dramatic purposes. And the film actually culminates on the ground of a sitting space that's off to one side, a space you're not even really looking at for most of that film. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, what that means is like on a theoretical level is he's going to use all these little spaces uh, and corners of this library in a meaningful way. Right. Yeah, Like movements. Correct. Correct. Act one happens mostly here. Act two happens mostly in these spaces. Correct. You know? So the most meaningful thing he does in, in this way is he uses the second floor for emotional purposes. When people are getting more and more exuberant or making a really important point, they use the second floor. Okay. Yeah. That's so on point. And dude. it's one that's of those like so good. It's one of those things where it's like, well, why don't they just have whole scenes up there? Because if you have whole scenes up there, you don't have the emotional impact of the occasional towering over somebody that the second floor offers. I'm telling you like it is, I'm looking down exactly. upon you. So this yeah. this taps into a thing that sometimes when I teach directing classes, I will call the lizard brain. Right. And mm-hmm. by lizard brain, what I mean is there are core things in human perception that have emotional meaning. One of them is if you look up at something, that thing has power over you. That's just like a way human beings feel. Is it always like that? Not necessarily, but it's like from our infancy, we were trained looking up at our towering parents that those big things have power over me. Right. And only a few things are powerful and at ground level, like right. sharks. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's all. Only That's sharks. That. Thank you for adding that. Yeah. Uh, I think Hughes is actually very smart because he does use it for those purposes, but he also uses the second floor um, in this way that satirizes the order of high school, right? This is the given order. And Bender is constantly using the stairwell or the railing or the second floor as a way to sort of stand above the status quo of high school and poke holes in it. And he also uses it in this other way that you rarely see, which is transcendence. He gives people the power of transcendence, right? So like the end They're out of their system that they're placed at the beginning, which is in your box, in your desk. Right. Like the dancing section and the weed smoking section, both in crazy, like incredible things to happen in a movie where they're in detention. Uh, They both happen upstairs, right? Emilio Estevez's dance spasm. And scream that it's, shatters glass. That's upstairs. <laughs> that is the wildest thing in the movie. <laughs> what is that? It's clearly for jokes. What is that? It's for jokes. 
It's for jokes, I know, but it's just like, but there's not really, there's not like reality shaking jokes in this movie. It's the only one. John Hughes gets away with a few things that are, and now we break the narrative because it's funny. Like, uh, like he does a few things that would belong in like uh, one of those Benny Benny Hill cartoons, or not cartoons, but like those old sketch shows. Old sketches. Yeah. Yeah. No, for, I think it's early days meta humor. Mm -hmm. We were aware Just a little of the, bit. like wanting to be meta, but didn't really have a structure for it in place because we hadn't seen people absolutely nail it. You know, I think it says something about how well the movie's working that Emilio Estevez is able to scream and shatter glass, and you're not like this movie is stupid. It's true. You know, it, I mean, and it works. Uh, yeah. So that happens upstairs, though, right? Like on a very right. literal level. They have transcended the desks they are chained to, right? Which they're supposed they are supposed to not move. That's like the first thing they learn. We learn in the movie. Okay, so yeah, very cool. A second thing he does with the locations and this one location problem is he constructed the script because he's also a writer in such a way that we get breaks from the big room right when we need them, right? In fact, he writes in problems that don't need to happen just to get us out of the room. Right, Bender separating from the group is basically done for the reason of let's get out of this room for a little bit so we can go yeah. somewhere else. Um, also, there's a unique feature to Bender separating from the group that I think actually adds a lot of meaning to this movie, which is that Bender is the only person who sees the adult world without the filter of being a kid. Right, like when he goes right. off and confronts Vernon outside of the group, we see rage and violence on Vernon's part. We see adults talking. Yes, yeah. we do. Um, and I think it's really interesting that John Hughes wanted that to be in this movie. You know? Um, because I, when I watch it now, I like I find it very disturbing. I, you know, I thought... I thought yeah, it, he grew up really quick. Yeah. He's beat by his father, you know? Right. And I, I thought of this as being like a little more of a disposable threat when I was younger, you know? But now I watch it and I'm like, oh no, this... Bender getting away from the group is the only way we see how Bender really gets treated because we never meet his family. So we never know for sure if Bender's telling us the truth or not. Right? And I this like how tells he us at it early. He is. Like it, a good writer, he does this thing where early on in act one, uh, the, the first interaction is like, he's like, I'll give you an, uh, like, I'll, I'll give, give you, you another horns. week of detention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you, yeah, two weeks, two months, you know, like. Right. He's like, yeah, I'll have another. I'll have a fucking another. Give me another. I don't care. And it's just like the fact that he does not care. Like it could be a hundred weeks. Right. He He's like the fact that he has no reverence for his own time or anything like that. That's some dark shit. It is dark. Like even, totally. the, even the darkest like fuck everything kids that I knew growing up, they would be, they, they could still be, you know, like subdued. They could be broken by a few weeks because it's like, but I still want to enjoy myself. I have something to look forward it, to that this is costing me. Right. He, right. it really does mean he has nothing to look forward Correct. to. Correct. That's right. So we do know that Bender, Bender's pain is real from earlier in the film, but seeing this older man threaten to beat him up some years later when he's really an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Is really haunting. Uh, because and speaks to the generational trauma that the movie does. About, yeah, yeah, know? right. It does, and it tell like because you see the fear in Bender's eyes, like the and the sadness. Just like man, I don't, I don't deserve this from you. And he's right. Bender doesn't yeah. deserve that from him. Um. Anyway, I the only way we get that kind of honesty, like we get that breaking into this high school conversation, is by taking Bender out of the room, and that's very clever. Right. Yes. Um, it also makes the movie feel more grounded in the sense that it's not Ferris Bueller when Bender leaves. Right. It's it's now we're into really dark shit when we get away from that room. Right. It's not all happy fun. Right. You know, even Ferris Bueller has low points, but it's more of like, no, I don't, I don't know who I am. My dad is a, a he ignores me oppressive, but right. I'm I'm fucking rich and I you know everything is my life is great. Um, it's true. That's not true. With it's this. not true. Bender, Bender is facing deep problems, um, real problems. So another time we get this is there's that very silly excursion to get a soda that feels mm-hmm. earnest in the way that like 
you know, you just aren't going to sit in a room. Like high schoolers just aren't going to sit in a room for nine hours. They're not going to do that. And no. this, it felt very honest, but also it was like, you got to get them out of this room. Otherwise we're bored. Right. Uh, a little bit. So this running sequence completely arbitrary. There's no reason that they don't need to do it, but it feels truthful because we don't want to be in the room any more than the high schoolers do. And that's kind of the subconscious thing going on by making a one location room. Is the one there's also there's also a psychological effect of the charm of like a, the, they're now a team working together. Right. Someone that's right. And again, that's all clever screenwriting, but it's it's smart from a directing point of view because you got to know when your audience is ready for a break. You yeah. got to know that. If you don't know that, then the movie's not working. Um, Dynamics. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is where the next thing we want to talk about is what I'll call blocking. And I'll define that in a second. Um, Johnny Hughes blocking in this movie is very subtle, but extraordinarily effective. Um, and what I mean by blocking is that um, where we have the actors move and sit and what we have them physically doing. Not even so much what they're saying, that's also part of directing and acting, but where they are physically, what they're physically doing, that's blocking. And I would say Hughes' best work as a director is on display here in the way that he blocks with Bender, right? Bender, the, yeah. the first thing you see him do after he walks into detention is he shoves Brian out of the seat in the middle of this desk setup. Because he's a disruptive influence, Correct. and that's the whole point. Correct. It tells you exactly who he is, right? But also, it tells you exactly who Brian is. Like, it's an act that gives us a lot of meaning, okay? And then it does this brilliant, uh, like, further thing of setting up what is this, who are these people, what do they represent in high school, right? So, to mm -hmm. do that, I'm going to examine this first sequence, like, where are people sat, and what does it mean, right? So, because I would say that's where we start, socially in this movie, not where we end. Right. So in the first scene, right, not scene, but first sequence, basically, where we're in detention, in row one, we have Claire, uh, played by Molly Ringwald, and Andrew, played by Emilio Estevez. And they very much represent the establishment, right? Um, Andrew... The jock yeah, and the Andrew princess. Is a good, yeah. He's a successful jock. He's going to get a scholarship, right? And she is, even though she has her problems, she's the popular girl. She's high school, you know, prom queen. That's who she is. Mm -hmm. And they represent by sitting together in the first row that they're in agreement about the way the world works, right? There's a kind of egalitarianism for them. They share the same table. Yes, yeah. they share the same table, right? Now, the first table, the king's table. The one that, yes, the front-facing one, correct. Now, the second row is Bender, and but also Bender took that row. Right, he didn't have to sit there. He could have sat in the back or some other place. He takes it from mm -hmm. Brian, and the best thing about it, of course, is that it's literally in the middle of everybody because that's Bender's role is to get in the middle of everybody's shit. You know, he is the center of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Which for the first half of the movie, you almost think it's his movie because he is driving everything in the plot, and then it's you know he sort of starts to take a back seat for the latter half of the film. Um, right, because he kind of coaxes out of them their desire to get real. Yes, that is his job. He is a cattle prod for reality, right? And Hughes is constantly making that happen by where he makes Bender move, right? Sometimes when he's not making progress, Bender will then get up on a rail and sit higher than them to provoke them, right? That happens in the first sequence with Emilio Estevez. Um, mm -hmm. It's... And what it does is it creates a new emotional perspective for every point that Bender is actually making, right? One could say that he's bending their perspective. <laughs> One could say that. Put that earring in. <laughs> Put your special earring in for that point. Please insert girder. <laughs> <laughs> Love Sorry, it. I can't help it. No, every time great. you say Bender, I just think of, shut up, baby. I know it. <laughs> I know it. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Ever tell you he stole my cigarettes? That actor stole my cigarettes? Wait, wait. The guy, who, what? the guy who played Bender in Futurama. John. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really, yeah. John DiMaggio yeah, he was stole at, cigarettes. Yeah, from yeah, yeah. We were at a, <laughs> we were we were at a baseball game in a box seat for something. It cracked. I don't remember what it was. And he was in there, right? And uh, it was like Dan and Soren's thing, and I got invited along. And I was downstairs having a cigarette. He's like, "Yo, can I have a cigarette?" Right? And I'm like, "Sure, sure." Yeah. <laughs> and I and then I got That's a phone call or whatever, and he just took the pack. <laughs> like they were just gone. It's like, all right, cool. I love stealing. I love taking yeah, things. Yeah. Uh, That's so. It's really good. Anyway, that's a good so, story. 
<laughs> so Bender from this film. Um, yes. So Hughes is constantly using Bender, of course, to provoke people to reality. But Hughes is shooting this movie in a very, in a very direct, non-fancy way where all of the angles are basically from the point of view of one character at the point of view of the character they're talking to. It's pretty like it's yeah. pretty standard. It's the way we always know where we are in the film, and everyone on the same level. Correct. Yeah. So when Bender sits up high, we get an angle that's from up high looking down at Emilio Estevez, and we get an angle from down low looking up at Bender from Emilio Estevez's point of view. It's very simple stuff. Okay. Um, the fun thing about Bender moving around a lot is that it also creates a kind of emotional ambiguity about him. Right. Sometimes he's higher than us, so he seems reasonable. Sometimes he's literally lower than us, right? Like when he's got his face and Claire's crotch, and you're like, okay, so is this guy just a monster? Maybe. Right? Like there's a, there's a sense in which Yeah, there's a feeling of unhinged. Yeah. yeah, we don't know. Is he wiser? Does he know something they don't know? Or is this all theater? Right. Also, if he's the one orbiting them and constantly in motion, his shots will have new backgrounds Correct. all the time. So we're not feeling the stagnation of the room behind us. Right. right? And that is a, that's a key ingredient. If we see the same angles over and over, we start to get bored with the space we're in. But Bender moving around means we take in these little spots in the space we didn't see before, so it feels fresh. It's really smart. Okay. Really smart. Now, on the fringes of... The, so, like, that is the main social unit, those three... On the fringes are two other characters. One of them, Brian, played by Michael Anthony Hall, wanted to be part of the main group, sat there on purpose, but was shoved out by Bender, a perfect metaphor for who he is, right? Because he's a nerd. Yeah, he's a nerd. Though. He's a nerd. He gets bullied. Yeah. He doesn't have enough agency to stand up for himself, right? Uh -huh. And Hughes consistently finds ways to alienate Brian the whole way through the film. Um, until the very end. He's kind of, he's a dick. He's, I mean, Bender really is a dick to Brian. Yes. For the whole movie. Yes. I think actually though, it's a way of Bender. I don't like, there's a part of me that thinks Bender actually loves him too. Like it's a tough love uh, maybe. thing. Yeah. I, and, that, and that, I don't know. I can't defend that. It's, 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 it's hard because it is from an, like an older time. Yes. But it does like rewatching it really just felt like ego. Um, it could be. And I think Allison points it out. Like, you're just being mean to people. Sometimes. Like, that's all you're doing. Sometimes it feels that way. But see, he also says things like, and this is just about the writing, really. He says things like, ah, you see, like, Claire, are you part of the physics club? And she's offended by that. She's like, that's an academic club. And he says, ah, but you see, to nerds like Brian, they're the same. And he was right about yeah, that. Yeah, he's insightful. Yeah, yeah. It's true. So I don't know. But like the second that he gets threatened, he, which I just, it speaks to his damage more than anything. That's right. Everyone is flawed. That's right. He's not a hero. He's not wise. Yeah. He's not necessarily wise. I mean, he may say wise things, but when it comes to himself, he's just as lost as all of them. I think that's right. Um, I think you're totally right. So the other character, and sh and is the Abe of the group, I guess we'll agree to. Uh, yes. Allison, who sits as far away from everybody else as she possibly can. So cool. It's it's great because she is relentlessly working on finding ways to quote unquote push people away, and yet every physical thing she does is also about getting attention. Every mm -hmm. single one of them, from biting her nails to the way she makes her sandwich, to like just the way she jumps in on any of that. You know, she she's mm -hmm. constant she desperately needs attention and yet it's always in this like but i'm so gross don't look at me right and yeah. her arc is great because she needs to let people actually get physically close to her that's what the movie's about and it culminates in two physically close acts from both of the high school royalty right claire and andrew get close to her with the makeover and the physical kiss that happens at the end of the film. And it's really rewarding for that reason. Yeah. You know? She's, she has the glow up. She does. And, and like, it seems very lame, but it's a really cool physical way of manifesting her inner problems, right? Where she sits. It's so mm -hmm. obvious. Um, she also right. does this great thing where she gives us just different points of view on the group. We're looking at it from a different angle. Um, which, you know, we need emotionally, but we also need just to break up the stagnation of the same old formations, right? So, yeah, exactly. So this physical, where they are at the top of the movie is the fundamental emotional relationship between the characters and every single movement these characters make 
after that is a blocking choice that gives us new emotional information, new ways to look at the room they're in, like the prison they're in, which is a metaphor for high school, and new ways to experience the actual space in which the movie takes place, right? And it's great. It's so simple, so rewarding. Um, In the final sequence in the library, by the way, after the dance montage, we end with all the characters that are not Bender sitting on a rail, so higher than they were, next to each other. They're all on the same level. They are all equal. They are all elevated from where they were when the movie starts. Right, yeah. It's like the simple just uh, ascension. That's Simple like they go up. Why? Because they, they learned have something. learned a little bit about each other and themselves, and they gained friends. That's all it is. But they learned something, and it's great. Okay? Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the technical camera piece of this, um, because, you know, this is director piece. We love talking about that. Um, I want it. to talk a little bit about lenses and a little bit about camera movement. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> Abe's getting really excited. Abe's making a sandwich mm-hmm. out of Doritos and stuff. Yeah. Yes, I am. Uh, surprisingly, the lens work here is pretty standard um, with two exceptions. Okay, so in the beginning of the film, like when we get into the library for the first time, Hughes uses m- more wide-angle lenses than he uses for the rest of the film. Okay. He also uses more wides in Yes, general. more wides and more wide-angle lenses, both things. Because as it... I think as it goes, it isolates the groups because we Correct. like now it's about the inner psychology. Correct. Yeah. So probably, I mean, it also might just be like, cause you, you know, we've all been first time directors, the feeling of, I need to make sure I show the room so you know where we are and where everybody is. True. Right? Like it's typically how things yeah, go. They yeah. have a thing that they teach in film school a lot that people get their brains sort of locked into called establishing wides. And young filmmakers, which means we're showing a wide that shows where the room is, right? And young filmmakers get mm-hmm. like married to this idea. I got to show the wide first so we know where we are. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, great yeah. filmmakers don't necessarily feel beholden to that. Um, That's right. But this is his first movie. And so he felt like you need to see the library. You need to see where they are. Um, but after that, as Abe so eloquently elucidated, um, he then starts to settle into mid mid range and long range lenses um, to separate people into portraits, right? Yeah, he really goes for he it does. too. He, um, it's like seventies, you know, mm-hmm. like it's like it's it's up. They're pretty it's long. Not just they're pretty long. Yeah. And something I noticed also, kind of with your previous conversation about like the backgrounds, it's like. Um, it kind of helps you keep the room a little different. Yeah, it's kind of a boring shot because it's just blurs of color, but like it doesn't make anything feel familiar. You know what I mean? So it does actually make the room not feel bigger or anything like that because it's actually compressing the space, but it's like it's making the backgrounds feel less important to you. So Correct. you don't really acknowledge the fact you're in the same room and these are the same, just single shots and stuff like yeah, that. I mean, but I'm, I'm sure you'll, well, talk no, you're exactly where I wanted this, to go. But... Like it, you, like it, it cool. literally hides the background by putting it out of focus. So right. it literally separates them from the room. Right. Which is one of the great mm-hmm. things. And by the middle of the film, you don't even know where in the library they are. You right. know, funny enough, I think the wide angle lens does one thing that we need geographically, which is it shows that gigantic statue in the middle of the library that John and the stairwell, and the stairwell that John Hughes will use later in the film just to show where they are in relation to the statue. Right. right. The statue becomes this like grounding thing like, oh, I see they're over there. Got it. Right. Also smart. It is smart. Ground. Get, ground the geography so that you can be less reliant on your wides and your it shots. It frees you up later to do whatever you want with camera. Now, this is like a, a small observation, but it's really important. One of the reasons the room is well chosen is that it's big enough to accommodate shooting on a long lens. You see, when right. you're shooting on a long lens, you have to get much further away from your actors and from your, you know, the subject of your shot because by compressing the space, you know, you have to get a larger distance from the camera to the subject, right? So in most rooms, shooting on long lenses is very hard unless you have 10, 15, maybe even more feet 
between you and the subject. And then it gets hard to hide the camera crew and all the gear, you know, like to light it becomes more challenging. So he chose this big wide open space that allowed him to shoot on longer lenses. A lot of distance. Yeah, that's yeah. really smart, you know. Um, I uh, <clears throat> I was thinking of this when you were talking about the height thing yeah. too. Because something, if you are shooting in a small room and you still, because there's basic stuff, you want distance between the camera, the subject and the wall background so you can light it well. And, you know, you don't want to shoot someone against a wall because it will look bad. The lighting will look bad. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a smaller room and you want that visual strategy of like looking up at someone, what do you see in that background if you have to get closer to the subject and you look up you're going to see the ceiling yep now the ceilings are like crazy tall in this room but with all of the lot wide or with all the telephoto lenses and the distance that it can attain you can look up at someone still achieve that look that eye line and still have the background be wall and have it look visually interesting yeah yeah yeah. you know it's really kind of like i don't even know if he thought that out but when he chose that room it's one of the biggest benefits of the room for his visual strategy is he can still make it look This good. may sound like really detailed and technical, but you guys should know when you shoot something on a sound stage, even though you have a lot of space to move around in, they don't have ceilings, right? They have mm-hmm. grids where lights are hung and stuff. So shooting straight up in a studio means you have to create a ceiling. You have to make it. And shooting right. on location, the advantage of it is you don't have to fabricate the space. You have it. That's the space. But usually you don't have mm-hmm. enough space to work around like in it. Those are the That's the trade-off between working on location or working in a stage. In this case, because he selected a great location, he didn't have that problem, which is really smart. Um, right. Okay, so just to like tie together this long lens thing. So I think the long lens also serves this very subtle like meaningful choice as a director. Um, it's not just hiding the space. It's that it's also obscuring the spaces in the library where meaning will happen later in the film, because very much like the social strata, that's very front and center with this high school cast. Um, ultimately it's when they get away from that into these little corners of their lives, they don't explore. That's when something mm-hmm. meaningful can happen. Change can happen. And his long lenses right. make that possible. You know, obscure that for us so that we get the feeling of a journey later on, even though we're still in the same room. Um, yep, yep. In terms of camera movement, there isn't any. <laughs> There's very little. Uh, There's, yeah. I almost none. I, I don't. Almost none. <laughs> I think the only pan is like the uh, scream shot. The scream There's a few. There's a few tilts yeah. and pans. Um, like there's a few up top to kind of introduce characters. They're extremely rudimentary. Like the kind of thing that I'm sure Abe did and I did I mean, I did more complex stuff in my first student film. You know what I mean? Like, it's there's nothing super mm-hmm. complicated here. There's a couple of dolly moves that are clearly designed to assist with the point of view when somebody moves, like Bender, in the beginning sequence. Um, but basically, those moves are just... that. All that stuff's there just to, like, uh, set up, you know, the frame of the space. Otherwise, he's shooting almost exclusively in these static portraits, except for... Mm-hmm three specific camera moves. There are three designed ones. And uh, two of them are... Actually, I think all three of them, maybe. No, there's two. Two of them are about characters falling in love. Right? So the first one that I'm thinking of happens when Andrew first actually engages with Allie. It's about middle of the film. um, And she says something that he doesn't accept about her. Like, she makes some sort of self-deprecating remark and he pushes a little further at her because now we know oh he likes her and that move is there to tell us that he likes her that's the move Mm -hmm. um and cool like a cool fact about it is we match it later when she comes out after the makeover like she pushes camera so there's a dolly backwards as she pushes camera and it sort of matches emotionally the effect of andrew pushing in on her and we know these two love each other and it's great. Yeah. You know, um, there's a similar move between Bender and Claire later in the film. When I was writing this, I was having a hard time tracking down where it is, but it's subtly woven in. Like you almost don't feel it where it's like, Oh, they, there's something here. There's actual heat here between these two. Um, right. But I, really there's like, those even are somewhat subtle. Like they're pretty standard camera moves. There's really one move that is the move in the movie. 
right? It's like, this is the one camera move. And it's a big giant dolly, and it's on Emilio Estevez's character for his monologue at the very last sequence of the film. Um, that is when he finally gets honest about what his, what it is with his dad, right? Like what mm-hmm. his life with his dad is and the pain that he's going through about the pressures of trying to be an athlete and not being able to fail. Yeah. And not, fe- not feeling what obviously like having like the destructive streak is not in him. Right. He's not like he, he feels for the people he's bullied. He doesn't yeah. want to be this guy that he's being. He's literally living right. somebody else's idea of his life. And he, cause he feels terrified to not right. be that guy. That's yeah. right. And there's a really big, you know, on a circle dolly track move to give us the sense of how big of a moment this is for him. And I think the other director instinct there is we got to move here because it's the turning point of the film. Like when he, when this guy finally gets honest, the rest of them can be honest, you know? Right. And it's because he's the, he's the height of success. He's the white male, you know, jock. That's right. He's top of the food chain kind of, so to speak in this ecosystem. And in, in a sense, I think that monologue is also the closest we get to directly addressing the themes of the film. You know, like like it it's not the most memorable lines in the film, but maybe the moment that we all remember the most from it. Uh and the director's instinct was I gotta do something to highlight that, and that thing was camera motion. And it works, it's fine. You know, there's nothing super fancy about it, but it's it works. And it does a nice it's a nice way of breaking up the feeling of static postcards that we've been getting the whole other rest of the film. You know, finally things are breaking loose. Finally, we're moving a little bit, you know. So the strategy, if I had to sum it up so far from Hughes, has been find a way to obscure the space, find new ways to, new formations to shoot the group in, find blocking that creates emotional connections that are new for each of these sequences, and use a very little bit of movement at the most crucial times. But the system is fairly static, actually, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where I think, so that's what I would sum up so far. But then Hughes does one thing in that final sequence that I that breaks the system that is a really cool way of understanding what the film is about. And that thing is he splits the eye lines. So right. what I mean by splitting eye lines very, very quickly. So like... With Brian. Yes, right? with Brian and Claire. So... What I mean by splitting eye lines is where I put the camera in a conversation determines where somebody should be looking if they are looking at the correct character, right? So imagine Abe and I sitting at a table, and then imagine somebody put a camera to my right, okay? And if we're looking at Abe, like his shot, right, Abe would be looking at the left side of frame to see me. And if you saw a camera angle to Abe's left, you would see I'd be looking right, and it would feel very normal. Like we'd be having a conversation. Yeah. If you were to put them side by side on a piece of paper, there literally would be a, a line that you could draw between the two. Called the 180 line. That connects. Yes. And that, that's what the 180 line is designed to create Correct. is the idea of the eye line being consistent. But the idea of putting them on side by side on a page and having a single line connect, that's the concept of an eye right. line. That's right. Uh, and it's how our brain interprets people looking at each other. It's, it's a way of very simply and easily making us feel grounded in the geography of the place. Right. And right. this movie is meticulously shot from point of view angles that do not violate the 180 line. Right. And it's it's shot from here's where who this character's looking at, here's the shot of the character reacting, and I know where they are, and they're all looking at the right side of frame, whatever that side is, the correct. I think that's important for an ensemble. Yeah, yeah, you because know, you correct. have so many people, you need to know where everyone is. They at all often times. say in film school, shooting a group scene is the hardest or shooting a dinner table is the hardest thing because you have to keep track right. of points of view. Right. And without yeah. violating. And them. you have to think like an editor Correct. and almost create a thread that can get you through that sequence of dialogue as opposed to being able just to cover it and saying, here's a shot for this person. Well, aren't they that if you're getting a single of that person, are, are you from this side of the table or this side of the table or this side of this person? And like there's too many decisions to be made. So they call it complex and hard to do because you are 
just absolutely overwhelmed with are you on his right shoulder exactly. left shoulder or are you over you get there in, on you get in person? these arguments it, like and i think even great directors occasionally get in these arguments because staying in the correct side of the line is important for not confusing the audience you know not yeah. confusing. now the great directors know how to use this to create meaning as i'm going to show you in a second but another simple example of it is uh if you ever watch the interrogation scene between the dark knight and the joker uh, Batman and the Joker in yeah. the movie Dark Knight. That's a director who's constantly jumping over the 180 line to show you who's winning, who's winning the fight. Like right. it's, a, it's a really simple way of understanding this <clears throat> concept. Anyway, so all this is to say our director has so far been extremely conservative about where the camera is placed, okay? And like just just wants us to comprehend where we are in the space. Then in this final conversation where they get honest with each other, Right, we have that dolly move from Andrew where he gets honest, and we we start to get more intimate. And then there's this key moment where we jump to a new wide, that's from the side, right, from an angle that's between Brian and Claire. And yeah, we haven't we seen haven't seen that angle. And then Brian asks this question, and the question is, are we going to be friends on Monday? What's going to happen on Monday? Yeah. And we get an angle on Brian that feels correct. It's like, yeah, yeah, like that's where he should be looking, right? But then we get this angle on Claire where Claire is looking off to one side when she looks at Brian instead of on the correct, I'm putting that in quotes, the correct side of camera that would match Brian's. In other words, the eyeline is split. There is a conflict in their relationship. We feel like she's not looking at him directly in the way that she should yeah. be, right? And it's simply, it's all based on camera placement. It doesn't trigger us like, where are we? We know where we are. But the angle sort of suggests this feeling of she doesn't actually feel close to him, right? She act they, are they are disconnected. Yeah. Maybe there is a real problem here. And then she says, no. No, we're not going to be, be friends. Let's, let's yeah. be realistic. Because Claire hasn't truly grown yet. But the cool thing about this is that he's actually setting us up for the next moment. Because the next moment is that Bender does his his most intense push of the movie at like, who are you? How dare you? Right? And, the, and we yeah. get this great sort of like one-on-one -on -one shot with them. Um, or it's like a single on him. And a single on her. And the shot, the angle that we were looking at her from when she was talking to Brian is perfect for her looking right at Bender. Right. right. He like ratchets her to, forces her eyes. To him. Like even, yeah, it's like now it's just between us Correct. basically is what Hughes is doing. And he's like, now you know where everyone's looking because you're looking right to, almost down the barrel. And we see that this is actually the thing the movie's been building to is Claire being like Claire's social status, her belief about her social status being destroyed. And Bender is the yeah. only person who can do it. And Bender has earned right. their credibility in a way enough to do it. You know, it's, and like, that's when you realize that's why we get the fist pump at the end, I think, because this moment in the film, because he's like, I broke her. <laughs> <laughs> I made her love me by hurting her. Yeah. 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 By nagging her until she loves me. It is gross in, from that point of view. But I think yeah. if you, I think it's hard. It's in the right. I think place, so. Right. But yeah, I think that's right. It's not a great. They, well, they do have that great line that he says, like, wouldn't I be a great, uh, wouldn't I be great to as a tool to make your parents angry at you, right? Like he he's yeah, that's smart. Like he he sees himself as being yeah. used regardless of the system. So he's like super he knows, self aware. Yeah, he knows about, what it yeah. is. The point is that the director made a really smart choice there to telegraph for us this moment that was coming between Bender and Claire just from the angles that we used that created a sense of dissonance. Right. That was the core dissonance of the film. In a strange way, Claire not being able to acknowledge Brian is the core problem in the film. You know, right? And, and emotionally, this this whole sequence is like people starting to go, "Whoa, do you guys feel what's yes. in the room Correct. between us?" I think we're actually this is something that's bigger than all of us, right? And everyone's like, "Yeah, I kind of am feeling it too." Let's all start to share, 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 and then Claire is resistant, and it's like snap you back into yeah, place. Yeah, she's the one know? that has to admit it is all a facade. She has the most to lose. Right. That's you right. Know? Because even the even the king, the you know proverbial like jo jock type, is like 
to me, he's he knows that that's not who he is deep down. She doesn't know that that's true about her. She's like, no, I like my status and I want to keep my status as princess. Uh, you know, I don't have any problems with who I am. And it's like, well, don't don't you though? That's don't what you so- have a problem with what it does to people? She's like, I guess it, I do. And then she re- when she once she realizes that. Uh, we've now. Grown. That's what's so cool about the movie is like they all accept even her small offering of like camaraderie, like when she does that thing where with the lipstick where she like puts it between her breasts and like puts yeah. on her lipstick, and they're all like, ah, oh, she was honest with us. But Bender's like, no, she wasn't. Like Bender, was Bender's the one that gets it compared yeah. to dude. Dude just talked about almost trying to kill himself, and you and you, <laughs> you did know, a parlor like, trick. Congratulations! And you did a little trick that you learned you could you pulled off because you're bored one right. summer in seventh exactly. grade. Now I'm yeah. not saying that that makes Bender good. I'm just saying that for like on an emotional level, he is the only one who could ha- who could have pierced through this veil of right. acceptance that she has lived with because he's outside. Because he's outside. System. Correct. I mean, I still think. It's true that, yeah, I think Bender is the right choice. Yeah. It's interesting that they made him. They also have the recluse character, you know. Allie, he's like the he's the criminal. Yeah, yeah. But Allie is seen as just like the recluse. He's a bit more of a, and it's like they both have the ability to see outside from outside of the um, social system. He's a bit more of a, a Lear's fool princess. type than she is. She yeah exactly. She's suffering from a problem that can be fixed by high school overtures, like being acknowledged. Mm. Like that's what she needs is to be acknowledged. That's yeah. he needs more than that. His problems are adult problems, you know. Like mm-hmm. he's he is beyond the anything those people could do for him. The system can yeah. really offer. Therefore, he has so the he has most, the mo- and he has to- the most offer them in some ways he has the most to offer to break down the system he's kind of the revolutionary she's just like kind of the nihilist or the doom and that's why he that's why basically every major stroke of the film from a blocking and camera point of view is built around him even though it's not necessarily his movie like he he Mm -hmm. may not really have changed i think the fist in the air is a way of saying that he did you know, that like, like him being yeah. Leclerc is a change for him, but I like, because that's him acknowledging I'm going to be part of this group. Now I will be part of it. Yeah. You know? Um, I mean, it's everything he ever wanted him being able to tell a bunch of people what it is and to be heard. That's the success, right. you know? So I'm going to wrap it up now. Um, I love this movie still, yep. uh, maybe because it's part of my childhood. Um, it is problematic for all the reasons we said, but I think as a filmmaking exercise, there's so much to admire about how the economic and strategic shooting plan was kept the background fresh, actually. Kept us kept us mm-hmm. interested in an hour and a half movie that is in one room. Um, and mm-hmm. shows you that the craft of directing is fundamentally about capturing the emotional performances and setting them up to succeed. Like... In this movie, some of the acting, especially Michael Anthony Hall, uh, for me, like it, it, it's like wow, they, he got so much out of these like twenty-two-year-olds, you know, like he he got a lot of great acting out of them, and he got out of the way so that they could do their work, and he set it up so that it had the most efficacy from where he was, like where the yeah. camera was placed, and. I hope that any of you out there who are aspiring filmmakers, or really if you're just film lovers. Um, I hope it shows you that a director planning strategically, like owning the limitations and finding a way to build a system for meaning and executing it can make something profound and artistic out of almost nothing. That is the joy of our craft. And I think it's really on display in this film. And that's it. So true. So fucking true. Yeah. Good work, my man. Thank you. I like this argument. I like the simplicity of design. And this really kind of cracks it open. It pries it open with a crowbar. I love it. Mm. Good stuff. Now we're just going to pump fists forever. Also, this, the song at the end is, for me, still like one of the great soundtrack moments. <laughs> it's so good, man. You can't hear that song and not think about this movie. Like It owns that song now, right? It, it kind of is. They're definitely tied together. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
I thought it was pretty funny that uh, even though like the ending, it does kind of happen. Like even though they earn it, uh, it does kind of happen suddenly that it's like everyone pairs off together. you know except anthony michael hall with the letter you know because he (laughs) writes the letter for the crew uh there's this moment which i I laughed out loud at which everyone is pairing off it's literally a cut to them like making you know doe eyes at each other right yeah being couples and stuff like that and then he finishes the letter and then he punches his arm and I like to think that he's like, hey, Arm, you'll be my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so like, uh, everyone but the nerd. Yep. The nerds will be alone That's, forever. It's not. He needs to find a nerd lady. Well, you know, so everyone can. I think we all know fuck. that nerds, uh, that they do better after high school, right? Like, yeah, that's also true that yeah. he is, you know, he's like 14, he's like 15 in you know like 1985 i don't know how old he he's gonna have the greatest yeah he's gonna be gonna just fine time. i don't know yeah. how old he was for this movie he looks like a child though like he looks he looks he definitely he looks, looks way younger than everyone else i mean yeah. he's clearly not though because he knows how to perform like some some pretty subtle comedy you know what mm-hmm. i mean like the way like his introduction the way that he acts with vernon is like pretty like maybe the subtly funniest thing in the movie, you know, where he's just like, very good, sir. <laughs> like he's, he's very good, sir. He's really good. Um, uh, he is six years younger than Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall. I'm just doing some math now. So this movie was shot in 86 years, 84, 80, 84. And he's, uh-huh. he's 55 now. He's 55 now. So that would have been almost 40 years ago. Right. Shit. Yeah, he was almost so 15. He was 15. Wow. Fuck, you were right. Yeah, I calls him like a season. <laughs> wow, he got a great performance out of a 15-year-old. I mean, sometimes kids can just kill it. It just depends on the kid. Yeah. You, you, you know, the fannings. The fannings. Everyone remembers the fannings. The Dakotas and whatnot. Yeah, but would you have seen them in this? In a movie like this? Yeah. Man, maybe, uh, maybe, yeah. I'm, maybe I'm uh, overestimating it. I mean, it depends on the role, but like, yeah, he, the thing is that he is a, he, he's cast as a type that is kind of like a very shy kid. And that's not something that we normally can think of that a, a performer, like, because usually they're like, when they're young, when they're 15 years old, they can do loud stuff, right. but can they do subtle shy stuff? Right. No, that seems like, that's like a harder cut, like casting call. do they have access um, do they have access to the kind of pain that would that would cause them to have an honest moment like this in the middle of a conversation with their peers right but also you know? subdued you think right. of like uh what's her name and true grit uh Haley. she was great what's yeah, yeah 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 i don't know her what's her name i don't fuck why am i blanking i don't know this? her name either but but this is a good example because she was very impressive like because she is Haley Steinfeld, she uh, or Steinfeld, uh, the like because she's larger than life. She has this thing. She's like, I'm going to be this, and I'm going to be 14 years old and go immediately on you know Jeff Bridges level. And it's like I, in fact, I own you, Jeff Bridges. You know, like, and that it makes sense to us in a way. Like Dakota Fanning uh, and Elle Fanning are the same way. As young children, there were almost wise beyond their years. And that's, that was the appeal to them Uh, with Anthony Michael Hall. He is a kid, but also at the same time showing an alarming amount of, uh, you know, maturity for some, for a kid that you would expect is, you know, just want to clarify kind of, it's, it's not, it's not Michael Anthony. It's Anthony Michael. My bad. He's also, he was Anthony Michael. He was 17, not 15. He was 17. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I got the year wrong. I think, yeah, he was 17. Ali Sheedy was 23. Molly Ringwald, 17. Uh, That's crazy. Emilio Estevez, 23. That makes sense. Guess how old Judd Nelson was? Uh, 45. No. <laughs> <laughs> how old was he? 26. Wow. Okay, wow. Yeah. yeah. yeah he was I old. knew he was going to be older, it. but like, uh, damn. He's looking I mean, good. you could see it. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of see it. Yeah, he's he's a man. Um. That's crazy. What a crazy, yeah. what a crazy, well, no, nothing's crazy about this. this is a good, it's a fine movie. Good John theory. Hughes was 35 at the time. 
I know. Makes me depressed, man. Shouldn't nah. have told me that. I'm not going to get depressed. It's all right. I'll build to, my time machine and go back in time and make Honestly, my movie then. If you want to get really depressed, he died when he was 59. That Johnny doesn't is. depress me. We got to get all the, get the old guard out of the way. If they're older than me. <laughs> okay. Get out of here. I really kill all directors. That's Abe. That's how Abe. That's my strat. That's how Abe finally wins. Until there, there can only be one. Yeah, Sounds but until good, then, man. you and I have a truce. You know, that's true. Yeah, but like Highlanders. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like Highlanders, there's going to be a reckoning. The prophecy foretold that this, this, that this podcast ends in a death match. Yep. And so one of us beheads each other, and the lightning yeah. strikes one of us, and here we go. No, uh, yeah, that was great, my man. Um, yeah, let's start the let's start the wrap up. Okay. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, you can catch uh, Director Peace Theater. It's all on the free feed, so you probably listen to this through whatever you listen to um, podcasts. But hey, guess what? If you have a chance. If you, if you stumble on over to patreon.com, you get a bunch of other free, like not free, you get a bunch of other content that comes that you wouldn't get on the free feed. Um, you get shows uh, like Spielboys, like uh, Star Trek, the next Futurama. You get bonus episodes of I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Well- uh, you get like razor blade pie and we have big news coming up in like in a few weeks here, uh, other shows. Um, other also, shows. you get you, you. We'll have the announcement soon. Yeah, and you get all the episodes over a week early, so you don't have any reason not to come to Patreon.com/slash/smallbeans and throw some scratch, baby. That's it. Anything you want to add, Adam? No, just uh, don't forget about us. Don't you forget about us. All right. Let's grab our broadswords. And I guess we're going to define who's the true director. Yeah! Yeah!